0: Okay, the topic that um, the wicked director of this program assigned was, turned out to be a difficult one, uh, the worldwide revolution for liberty, and it, it took a lot of thought what I could include and what not, because the world is a pretty big place. I thought I'd give just a little bit of an overview of the global nature of the Liberty Movement, and a little bit of background first. I've been involved, and I'll show a little bit on that, in uh, the movement for liberty in uh, difficult places for a long time. And I remember being in England once, and I was at a conference, and a charming British professor, who was a very interesting, nice, genteel person, with an audience made up of Germans, Egyptians, uh, Moroccans, Belgians, uh, Swedes, and so on, that I had assembled, and he was one of the people that the local organizers invited to speak, he proceeded to say, of course, the very idea of liberty is uniquely English concept. Other languages have no word for this. That was one of the most absurd and risible things I'd ever heard. It was just really astonishing. But even though this was a a peculiar and strange claim that he made, and I've heard it a couple of other times from uh, typically English chauvinists who are excessively proud of things of which One could be legitimately proud, but in such a way that they don't understand other countries and cultures and groups have a claim to this as well. But nonetheless, you sometimes find a milder version of this that is just taken for granted. That somehow people in other countries don't understand the idea of individuality, or don't take life seriously, or uh, don't feel it when they're tortured by the police or when red hot peppers are rubbed into their eyes. Uh, And there's a kind of lack of appreciation that everybody, everybody has a common set of capabilities as a human being. Now we'll start, though, going back to the American Revolution, which has been discussed uh, very capably by uh, Randy and Rob. And one of the things to remember, it was not just a war for independence. I think this is how it's usually taught now to school children in the United States insofar as they're taught anything and insofar as they're taught anything about American history uh, other than that it included slavery and genocide, which it did. Uh, But that's all they hear. They don't hear anything else. It wasn't just a war for independence. As I tried to stress, it was built on foundations that go back for centuries, even millennia. Ideas of individual human rights, of dignity, of the rule of law, of human equality, and so on. There's a very, very deep foundations uh, to this set of ideas. And it was an event in a much wider uh, global movement for human liberty. And then set in motion many other revolutions. Some were successful, and some not. Some it somehow didn't take, or they didn't have good fortune or good luck. Now, one thing to think about in the, when people talk about the uniqueness or the special nature of American institutions, Americans are justifiably uh, pleased with their Constitution. As a good friend in Washington once did say, he said, you know, the Constitution of the United States of America is not a perfect document. But it's a lot better than what we have right now. Uh, People in the U.S. like to point to their constitution because it's had a continuity of small-r Republican government. There have not been military coups in the United States and so on. The Civil War was a horror. Uh, After that, you have substantial continuity. It doesn't translate very well to other countries. And I'm not in favor of the American presidential system in most other countries. The reason is, when you get a president, it turns out, more often than not, when that president is commander in chief of the armed forces, that president turns out to be Saddam Hussein, or Hosni Mubarak, or someone like that. And the United States was really lucky, very, very fortunate that the first president was George Washington. I think was one of the greatest political figures who ever lived. And it took me many years to come to that appreciation because he was in many ways more conservative, uh, didn't suit my younger radical temperament. But I came to appreciate what an important person he was, that he had such power and resigned twice as the head of the army and then as president when it was very clear he could have been king. He could have been king of whatever they would have called the country. And he didn't want that. He wanted to go back to his business. So there are many other elements of his life that indicated he was a person of extraordinary personal integrity and virtue. So the Americans were really lucky that their first president was George Washington and not Saddam Hussein. And that matters but most other countries do not not turn out to be that lucky. And that's why I generally prefer a parliamentary system of government and strongly support that in countries uh, that have had these problems because it's a little more difficult, by no means impossible, a little more difficult to create a dictatorship when you have to have the support of a majority of a parliament and assemble a coalition. Uh, And so in several countries that I work in, they have gotten rid recently of presidential systems that the US Embassy had encouraged them to adopt. Kyrgyzstan is a good example. They threw out two presidents who aspired to dictatorship and began to seize power and arrest people and steal everything in the country, and finally abolished that and moved to a a parliamentary republic, which I think was uh, very wise. But nonetheless, setting that aside is a quirk of the American Constitution that, with its many virtues, I do not think exports well. Uh, Many other revolutions came about from this, and I think most people are acquainted with that history. What was the American Revolution about then? Well, it wasn't just a war for independence. And Jefferson, uh, John Adams, rather, in his letter to Thomas Jefferson, put it very neatly. What do we mean by the revolution? The war? That's how it's normally taught. The revolution meant the war. He says, no. That was no part of the revolution. It was only an effect and consequence of it. The revolution was in the minds of the people. and That was the key. That was the revolution. It was a change in mentality. And he gives these examples here from 1760 to 1775, 15 years before a drop of blood was shed, at Lexington, and he gives records of the legislatures, pamphlets, newspapers, uh, and so on. So that was the revolution, and that's, to some extent, what I want to talk about globally as well, to the extent that one favors a libertarian revolution. It's a change in mentality. One hopes policies and governments will change without bloodshed. And the general record is, and again, the Americans were lucky in this regard, When there is a change that takes place by bloodshed, the outcome is very rarely propitious for liberty. Because once government has been changed through violence, that sets a pattern for the next change, and the next change, and the next change. Nonviolent revolutions tend to be much more libertarian, not only in the course of carrying them out, but in the consequences to follow. And that's something that Peter Ackerman and a number of other scholars have studied very carefully and come to the conclusion nonviolent change really is important, not only because violence is a bad thing and should be avoided, but violence tends to beget violence and more violence to follow it. Now, the Declaration of Independence fueled this libertarian struggle also against slavery, something that Rob has stressed, and for equal rights for women. This man is, in my opinion, one of the greatest heroes of the Liberty Movement. Frederick Douglass, for those of you who don't know him well, he wrote two autobiographies. They are important works of American literature, and they're very moving. This was a truly great human being. Born a slave in Talbot County, he liberated himself. At that time, it was forbidden, or certainly strongly discouraged, to teach slaves to read and write for pretty obvious reasons. There was a recognition, although there was the language, that they were somehow inferior. The recognition was uh, that once they acquired literacy and skills and so on, uh, they would liberate themselves and were something to be feared. He did liberate himself. He also taught himself how to read and write. I find this really difficult to imagine, how you would teach yourself such a skill. And he's, he explained he would challenge other boys. When you're 6, 7, 11 years of age, children didn't distinguish so clearly uh, between race or, or condition of servitude. He would challenge the white boys uh, to spell words, saying, I'll bet you don't know how to spell that word. And they, of course, would say, yes, I do. And then he'd say, show me. And they would write it. And he paid very close attention to that. When he did acquire some money, because he worked, his, his owner leased him out, in effect, in a shipyard. And there was still negotiating space between master and slave. Uh, slaves were able to work a little less diligently or a little bit more in exchange for incentives. Uh, and he negotiated to get some money for in exchange for which he was going to work harder But that money went to buy books, and specifically books of famous speeches and orations. He taught himself to be a great writer and a great orator, and really an enormous uh, hero of liberty. Uh, This was part, again, of a global struggle against slavery and serfdom. Uh, And liberals, libertarians in our American context, campaigned all around the world uh, for this for the complete elimination of this horrific legal distinction the America's slavery and uh, serfdom in Europe. Uh, Brazil here, I'll talk a little bit more about that struggle, the last country in the Western hemisphere to eliminate uh, chattel slavery. This is the painting of Alexander II's famous proclamation of the liberation of the serfs. Remember, I mentioned uh, the other day how much chance and contingency there is in human history. It's not just a natural unfolding of something. Uh, We should avoid presentism, that the present was inevitable, that the past had to lead to what we have now. And this man is a very good case in point. Uh, He was assassinated by very wicked, terrible people, the nihilists in Russia, on his way to sign a new constitution for Russia to model it as a constitutional monarchy on the lines of Great Britain. He had liberated the serfs. He's known as the liberator. And he wanted to have a constitutional monarchy with very strictly limited powers for the monarch. And he was murdered. And indeed, although he was in some ways a a tough man, uh, he had a heart. He was killed because after they threw grenades, killed some people in his entourage, he was in an armored carriage. They um, killed his uh, driver and he got out to help the people who had been wounded, at which point one of the other nihilists threw another grenade and killed him. His successor reversed all of this. So that's one of those moments when, had they taken a different route, Had the bombs not done their job, the history of the world would be radically different. And one could speculate how different it would have been. Imagine a world with no Soviet Union. Uh, Imagine a world in which Russia had become a liberal, democratic, capitalistic nation, uh, as it was rapidly industrializing at this time and developing quite rapidly a middle class. And that was brought to an end. Now, also, though, of great significance was the movement for equal rights for women. And this came out of the abolition struggle very strongly. A statement from Angelina Grimke, she and her sister, Sarah, were very prominent abolitionists in America. They were colleagues with Douglas and others. And they made the point if rights are founded in the nature of our moral being, the mere circumstance of sex does not give to man higher rights and responsibilities than to woman. That is to say that there was no essential distinction between men and women, and libertarian writers, female writers and men as well, argued very strongly for eliminating the legal distinctions between men and women. A married woman had virtually no rights of her own, she was considered capable of acting only through her husband. And that was interesting because an independent woman, a non-married woman, was able to own property. But if she married, she lost those rights of independence. Interestingly enough, the other abolitionists were strong supporters of this, the male abolitionists. Frederick Douglass among them, and also William Lloyd Garrison, a very important, uh, fiery person. And on a famous occasion, when he had traveled across the Atlantic to the World Anti-Slavery Congress meeting in Great Britain, uh, getting there to Britain, the, the American delegation was uh, mixed in terms of both race and gender. They were willing to seat the black men. But as for the ladies, the English hostess, of course, they may observe from the galleries. And the American male abolitionists, led by William Lloyd Garrison, said, fine. And they went to the galleries to sit with the ladies as a statement of solidarity, uh, that they felt that the cause of women's liberation was also a great moral cause. Now, there's very, something very important about this. And that is a part of what the liberal movement uh, represents is concerned for the freedom of other people. Now, Frederick Douglass was himself a slave, so you can sort of sense he was being selfish by liberating himself. And Angelina Grimke was a woman, so maybe she was selfish and supporting equal rights for women. But the white abolitionists did not have to fear being enslaved, and the male feminists did not have to struggle for their personal Rights. we are constantly criticized by our uh, enemies. I don't like that term, but by those who have other values and principles. They say of us we're selfish. You are selfish, greedy, cold. I mentioned Michael Gerson uh, from the Washington Post constantly making this charge. uh, Greediness and coldness in German, uh, liberals <coughs> are charged with It's a terrible insult. Social coldness of liberalism. And nothing could be further than the truth. Not at all. Because to be a libertarian isn't to be concerned only with your own freedom. It's to be concerned with the freedom of other people. So I suspect most of the people in this room are not habitual users of pot might be wrong, but I suspect, just kind of looking at you, most of you probably are not. And yet, it doesn't stop people from supporting legalization of it. I don't smoke pot. I don't like being around it. Uh, But it really upsets me when people's lives are destroyed because they owned a plant or because they smoked some leaves. It didn't hurt anybody else. That was put very neatly by a great figure from Brazil, Joaquim Nabucco. I was introduced to his work in Brazil. He's really a remarkable person, a poet, a diplomat, a historian, most interesting person. And he worked for years and years and years for the abolition of slavery in Brazil. And he put it very neatly. It's for everyone. Educate your children, educate yourselves in the love for the freedom of others. In effect, that's what it means to be a libertarian. And in fact, you can only really love your own freedom when you love the freedom of other people. As he says, only then you'll be aware of its worth and you'll have the courage to defend it. Purely selfish people, selfish not in Ayn Rand's sense of the term, which is not the common usage, but in the everyday language use of the term. uh, People who are selfish don't support equal rights for everybody. They want, for themselves, privileges to be paid for by others. So to support liberty is to believe in the freedom of other people because other people matter. And one of those very difficult lessons for human beings to learn, and it's something that one hopes they learn as children, other people don't belong to us. Right? That's a very hard lesson. Other people just don't belong to us. Everybody out there has his or her own principle of motion. They have their own plans. They have their own desires in life. They may conform to mine. They may be complementary to mine, but they're not mine. And that is a very important realization of adults. Now, liberals struggled throughout the world not only for more prosperity... (coughs) but for peace. And some of the great figures, I can't go into great detail on these, although I do talk about all of them in my next book coming out September 1st, (laughs) Peace, Love, and Liberty. Uh, Jean-Baptiste, very, very important figure, uh, was a peace activist uh, in France. His brother was killed in the Napoleon's expedition to Egypt, had a very strong personal motivation that it touched his, him and his family personally, uh, and also his work laid the intellectual foundation for peace. He explained something really important, which is now known as Say's Law of Markets, one of the most misunderstood principles in economics. That it's usually called, supply creates its own demand, which is a slogan that is rarely understood and almost never explained when it's articulated in that way. What he meant was the creation of things of value brings into being value that can be exchanged for other things. And specifically it means if my neighbors with whom I trade prosper and become more wealthy, it's not bad for me. It's good for me. I should be happy when my neighbors prosper. You hear in this country economic nationalists like the Lou Dobbs, if any of you have watch him he's an en- entertainer on television and he's uh, unbelievable one economic fallacy after another he used to be angry when the japanese were prospering then the chinese and i even heard him once complain about canadians prospering i thought wow that is low <laughs> yeah. i mean i mean canadians are so nice how could you be upset if canadians prosper but even Canada, he was fulminating that they were doing well. That must be bad for us. Of course, it's not. We should be happy when Canadians or Chinese people or Japanese or anybody else prospers. If there are trading partners, they can pay more for our stuff. We benefit from that. Would you rather have, if you have a store, would you rather have a penniless bum shuffle in or someone with a wallet full of cash? which is the more useful customer to you? And Lou Dobbs doesn't get that. He wants to interact with penniless bums (laughs) and not wealthy customers. William, uh, uh, or John Bright, rather, very important figure, along with Richard Cobden, these two men were founders of the Anti-Corn Law League in Great Britain. They struggle against the restrictions on the importation of corn, that is to say grain, uh, generally. And they did this, although they were prosperous manufacturers, so why would they want cheap corn? Because it was impoverishing the people. They had to pay more to subsidize wealthy landed aristocratic interests. They were strong free traders, and they were great peace advocates and, indeed, among the greatest critics of the British Empire. And it's a criminal predation on other people, specifically the British taxpayer, who was a loser from the British Empire. And this is unequivocal and very well documented. The British people lost. They paid so much in taxes to maintain that empire. Adam Smith also knew this and made that very clear in the Wealth of Nations, as he said, In the last war to obtain our empire in the Americas, we obtained a debt, a public debt, the interest alone of which per annum is greater than the value of all the trade of all the merchants with that part of the world. It was a losing proposition for the British taxpayer, but a gaining proposition for those who had mercantile monopolies and privileges and connection with the government. Frederick Bastiat, maybe, I hope, known to many of you, one of the greatest liberty writers ever, also a great campaigner for peace. These men and women supported peace, not only as free trade, not only because it made the market more efficient, but because it created a more peaceful and just world, and that was really what motivated them. This man, Eugen Richter, not so well known, uh, a great German liberal, and it is a very sad feature of the 20th century history that the term German liberalism sounds puzzling to many people. But Germany had a very powerful liberal movement. And these were the people who brought about the free trade zone in Germany. Uh, They were uh, great advocates of free trade and peace and disarmament, opponents of imperialism. And they were defeated by Otto von Bismarck. So This is another lesson. They were outmaneuvered and defeated by one of the most dangerous statesmen of the 19th century. And when I've given presentations in Germany, uh, German students sometimes who have not been acquainted with a liberal understanding of history, they tend to be taught that the unification of Germany, led by Bismarck through Blut and Eisen, blood and steel, was the greatest pinnacle of human history. And I explain. I said, yes, obviously. After that, you get World War I, German defeat, World War II, a horror, a Holocaust, German defeat, the division of Germany, way to go. It's a really fantastic uh, uh, track record. Uh, but the German liberals opposed him strongly and they warned what was happening in Germany, that the, that the German people would be reduced to helots that was to say they're the uh, slaves of the Spartans. And this man, not so well known, Frederick Passy, uh, a great free trade advocate. Uh, he was the founder of the International Arbitration Association, and the first winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, and also a very strong free market economist and uh, peace advocate. Unfortunately, as we know from the history of the Second World War, uh, this movement was substantially defeated in much of Europe. It was uh, foretold by E.L. Godkin, uh, an American libertarian, editor of a magazine called The Nation, which was originally connected to William Lloyd Garrison, the um, abolitionist. Uh, The Nation is not such a libertarian magazine anymore, but at that time it was. It was a pro-hard money or gold standard uh, free trade, limited government, pro toleration, and pro civil rights, that is to say, against the uh, disabilities and murders of black people, uh, magazine. And in his editorial of August 9, 1900, and it's excerpted in the book The Libertarian Reader, it's very chilling reading. Nationalism, the sense of national greed, has supplanted liberalism, an old foe under a new name. And then this, when I read this, my blood just chilled. The old fallacy of divine right has once more asserted its ruinous power, and before it is again repudiated, there must be international struggles on a terrific scale. He had a strong sense of what the 20th century, this new century that was about to begin, uh, was going to bring to the human race. And at this time, most of the liberals were old and depressed, The liberal movement was substantially defeated because of these new collectivist ideologies, nationalism, imperialism, socialism, fascism, scientific racism that emerges at this time, on and on and on. All of these competitors to liberalism were much more attractive to uh, the minds of the intellectuals of the day. And we know the result in the 20th century, uh, the rise of tyrannical, murderous states on just an astonishing scale. Uh, And these people responsible for the deaths of millions and millions of people. It is uh, deeply depressing. This last figure you may not recognize, that's Pol Pot. Uh, He uh, did not kill the largest number, but he killed the largest percentage of the country over which he tyrannized. So he certainly deserves to be on the list. Uh, these people were considered morally superior to those greedy, selfish liberals, the socially cold uh, liberals. Uh, and what they did was uh, to drench the world in blood. There were people who opposed them, and they deserve being mentioned. I mentioned in my talk yesterday uh, uh, the role of Tacitus and his understanding of history that it has a moral function. So there are some people that we should remember uh, who did have tremendous uh, courage. And when I think of these people, I have to uh, be careful not to choke up, uh, because they're such remarkable people, Hans and Sophie Scholl, uh, students who had the courage to ask this question. What happened to the Jews? Where did they go? The German people were told they had been resettled in the East. They'd moved. They said, where did they go? What happened to them? We know a crime, a crime is taking place. And they printed leaflets explaining this, and someone spotted them and informed on them, and they were very quickly arrested and then beheaded before the uh, Volksgerichtshof, the people's court um, and uh, murdered Uh, there were when communist tyranny was established there were uprisings and these are something that it's very difficult to document the current Russian government is extremely hostile to any attempt to document this and uh, groups like Memorial are suppressed this is a wonderful organization usually made up of quite old people who remember the Soviet tyranny very intimately. Many of them were in the camps, and they are trying to document and uh, uh, keep the memory of this going. There was a piece in the New York Times sometime last year. The current government hassles them mercilessly. They're often extremely poor elderly pensioners. And one lady in her 90s who was interviewed said, and it was, I just, I would like to meet this lady. She said, I was in Stalin's camp. You think I'm afraid of these punks? <laughs> uh, when they had come in and hassled them and seized the money they had in their little, uh, uh, what's the word, teapot. It was tea money. It was money to buy tea and biscuits for their uh, weekly meetings. So it would have amounted to like $40 or something like that. And they." KGB, now known as the FSB, broke in and took their little teapot of money. But as she said, you think I'm afraid of these punks? No. So that's the kind of person we need. And figures such as Andrei Sakharov, really an astonishingly uh, brave person, uh, nuclear physicist, uh, and uh, became dissident and wanted to tell the world about the crimes of the Soviet Union. So these are people we should not forget that even in the depths of tyranny, there were people of great courage. By the way, if you're in Washington, D.C., and you go to the Holocaust Museum, uh, there is a section on the White Rose. This group was, called themselves the White Rose. And I was really struck when I went there, they have the copies of their leaflets. The National Socialists kept a couple in the files. They kept files on everything. Uh, they documented their criminal behavior astonishingly well. And what really struck me was that the quotations on the first page, I would have imagined something from Man- Immanuel Kant or Wilhelm von Humboldt or one of the German Enlightenment figures. It was Lao and it was exactly the quotation that I put up on the board the, o- the other day that they drew their inspiration from the Chinese sage. and That was really quite uh, striking. Now, there was a revival of liberalism, and some of these figures were extremely important. These are really far-seeing individuals at a very bleak time. I mentioned Albert J. Nock, who died in 1944. Uh, reading his last essays, it's just extremely depressing. Uh, he thought civilization had come to an end. The world was plunging into an endless nightmare of tyranny and war, oppression and brutality. But not everyone was depressed. And there's a lesson Brian talked about, the need to be optimistic, the need to be hopeful, even in dark times. So some of these figures you'll recognize. Ludwig von Mises, uh, Isabel Patterson, Rose Wilder Lane, F.A. Hayek, Ayn Rand. I'll talk about these four in just a moment, why they're so important. A Milton Friedman, Luigi Einaudi, first president of the Italian Republic, a very great economic historian who had been an anti-fascist activist and came back to Italy, and he and the other Italian liberals were responsible for 10 years of solid free market growth in Italy. Italy became the fastest growing economy in the world during this time. And that's when you had the sweet life, as some of people will remember that phrase, uh, "La Dolce Vita," uh, in Italy. People had access to material goods they'd never had before. They swept away volumes and volumes of fascist economic legislation, freed the economy, and saw an amazing flourishing. Uh, and uh, Ludwig Erhardt, oops, come back to that. Uh, Ludwig Erhard, who was the finance minister of the German Federal Republic and famously lifted wage price controls and eliminated a great deal of the National Socialist legislation. And then they had, here it was the miracolo economico, and here the Wirtschaftswunder, the economic miracle uh, of Germany, uh, thanks to uh, the German liberals and the Italian liberals. So liberalism was relaunched in the very dark days of the 1940s. So there were just a few people who worked to revive this cause. And here are some of the ones worth thinking about. This lady, Isabel Patterson, she was a Canadian journalist, writer for the Saturday Review. A very interesting uh, woman, uh, as uh, uh, David Bowes, who's who's written on on her life, has mentioned. Uh, She and Rose Wilder Lane, uh, were both of them had been married, but they seem somehow to have misplaced their husbands because they, they were married and then no one ever heard of them again. So they wandered off someplace. The only thing we know about Mr. Patterson was a statement from Isabel Patterson that he was so cheap he would only afford one T in his name. Patterson was spelled with one T. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but she was really a really remarkable writer. And uh, in 1943, she published a book called The God of the Machine. Uh, She wanted to understand a free society like an electrical circuit. And the metaphor maybe only goes so far. But there's one chapter in it that I think is really outstanding. And that also is excerpted in the Libertarian Reader uh, called The Humanitarian with a Guillotine. She wanted to understand the modern state and the desire of politicians to usurp responsibility for other people's lives. And she referred to that as the humanitarian with a guillotine. The point being, how do I get my self-validation? By helping other people. What is necessary for that to happen? They must be in need. It's good for me when other people need me and are dependent on me. And she said, that really is not a way to help people. It was deliberately inculcated. Uh, dependency. Uh, Ayn Rand, a very important figure, a refugee from the Soviet Union, <clears throat> a talented writer, novelist. She really worked very hard. And just imagine writing uh, novels and the amount of material that she wrote in a foreign language. This is uh, not easy to do, to master the language. And she worked and worked and worked and worked at uh, gaining the mastery of English in 1943, The Fountainhead. It's difficult to explain why this book was so important in 1943. Today, people read it. It's about an architect. What it was about was celebrating human accomplishment and achievement at a time when this was looked down on. The individual was nothing. Fascist and collectivist and socialist ideology said, you, the individual, don't matter. Everything is a group product. Everything is the product of society slash the state. And the individual is just a cog, not a net contributor. And she wrote a book about someone who was an achiever. And that had a huge impact on people. Here was a celebration of personal accomplishment, a revival of a much older tradition. And Rose Wilder Lane, she's a really fascinating person, There's a very good biography of her, which I recommend. There are two, actually. Um, And her books are worth reading. She uh, was quite an adventuresome lady at a time when it was becoming more common but still unusual for a woman to support herself from her writing. And we should remember how much the world has changed just in that last century. It really has changed uh, quite dramatically. Uh, She wrote novels. She's responsible effectively for rewriting her mother's stories that became the Little House on the Prairie series. These are very elegantly crafted books for children, each one of which in the series has a more sophisticated vocabulary vocabulary and grammar so that the children can grow with the books. Uh, And then her own novels, her book, The Discovery of Freedom in 1943, was electrifying really is an exciting book. And she was a little ashamed of it. She wrote it very quickly. And it had some errors in it, because she didn't have Google. And so she just banged this book out very quickly. Uh, But it's a very, very exciting uh, statement of the value of liberty. And one thing that's important, she had traveled around the world. And she did not present that as a uniquely American, or uniquely British, or even uniquely Western story. And there's a very interesting uh, chapter on Islam and liberty, for example. She was acquainted with Islamic societies and did not see, when she thought of Islam, she didn't see Osama bin Laden. She saw Ibn Rushd and uh, Ibn Sina and the other great thinkers of the Islamic tradition, the merchants and the business people and the scientists, and not, as unfortunately people today see the terrorists and the Uh, monsters of the Taliban or ISIS. She also had a big influence on lots and lots of Americans. And then Friedrich Hayek, the next year, in 1944, The Road to Serfdom. And this book had a big, big influence, a deep influence on intellectuals globally. Now, they're all important in various ways. Uh, Patterson, Lane, and Rand, substantially in the U.S. and Canada. They wrote in English. And they wrote largely for North American audiences. I won't say U.S. because they were also widely read in Canada. And Isabel Patterson was Canadian herself. Uh, But Hayek was a professor at London School of Economics. He was connected with European intellectuals quite generally. And his book had a a bigger influence globally. Uh, This book, The Road to Serfdom, It was also produced in uh, pamphlet form and handed out in Britain and in America to explain to people that if the principle of wartime planning were adopted generally, it would lead to serfdom, that they were going to adopt the methods of the enemy, the fascists and the national socialists. So these were very, very important. It was also excerpted in the um, uh, Reader's Digest, and uh, uh, very widely read in the United States in that form. And indeed, if you want, the Reader's Digest version, which is very elegantly uh, uh, extracted from the longer book, is available in print. You can download it on the internet from the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. Now, those ideas had a big impact on a young Englishman. And this is a story that uh, I've always found rather inspiring. Uh, His name was Anthony Fisher. He was a hero of the Battle of Britain. And he went to Hayek after the publication of the Road to Serfdom, the war came to an end, and he said, Professor Hayek, I read your book. I think you're exactly right. You've diagnosed the problems here in Britain. I will want to run for parliament using your book as my platform, in effect. And Hayek told him, he said, hmm, You can just imagine, Hayek at the time was already a middle-aged man in his 50s. And he said, do you really want to change the country? Yes. You can just imagine. He was a very focused young man. And he had sacrificed so much in the war against fascism. His brother had been killed. He was also a, a RAF pilot. And Hayek said, then don't go into politics. Go into the world of ideas. And as he Brian Doherty quoted Hayek from his essay, The Intellectuals and Socialism. Leave the political compromises to the politicians. What we need to do is change the set of ideas within which they operate. So if that's what you want to do, have a long-term impact, you can do that. He became a successful uh, commercial farmer. These are just some of his awards here uh, as a decorated veteran. He became a commercial farmer. Interestingly enough, he traveled to the United States and learned about commercial chicken farming from a professor of economics at Cornell University named F.A. Harper, or Baldy as he was known for kind of obvious reasons. And Baldy Harper later founded what came to be known as the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University today. Some of you may be acquainted with that. And it was just kind of accidental that these two people who were so influential in building the Freedom Movement met to talk about chickens (laughs) and chicken farming. And that helped uh, Fisher to become quite wealthy. And then he established, actually I've got the date wrong, that's 1955, I apologize, Um, the Institute of Economic Affairs in Britain. And really quite a a remarkable uh, group that he assembled, and as he said, they the last two free market economists in the United Kingdom. Uh, I had the pleasure of, of knowing the two of them, Arthur Selden, who was the back office guy. He was a great writer and editor, and fearless. He grew up in the Docklands, a Jewish uh, milieu in Britain, and unafraid to take pieces written by famous Nobel Prize winning economists cover them with red pencil marks and send them back and say, this has to be rewritten. Uh, he was a really very, very fine editor, and everyone everyone loved him. Uh, and then Ralph Harris. And Ralph was the front office guy. He was uh, he, uh, the sort of figure, a kind of lovable cartoon figure of an English gentleman. Always had a pipe and an ascot. And he, he just walked out of a romantic 1930s movie and he was the one who sold the ideas. He would go to talk to members of parliament and to journalists and so on. He was really a remarkable uh, person. It was just a great team, and the IEA had an enormous uh, influence. Before that, though, Hayek, very important busy man, he established an organization in 1946. Now, he tried to get this organization established earlier but the war intervened, and people were not able to get visas and travel. But he had been in correspondence with people throughout Europe saying, "You know the terrible situation we're in. We have to do something to revive the ideas of liberty." Well, in 1946, they were able to hold their meeting in Montpeeller in Switzerland. And of course, they debated, what shall we call the, the organization? And there are different factions. Uh, the Acton Society, or the Tocqueville Society, or this, that, or the other thing. Because they couldn't agree, they looked up to the name of the hotel and said, let's call it the Mont Pelerin Society. So it's now the Mont Pelerin Society. Uh, Thirty-six scholars, really quite remarkable. They had eight who were to go on to get Nobel Prizes. Uh, Here's Karl Popper. uh, This is Hayek there. Really an amazing uh, group of people, Uh, some of the world-famous philosophers here, Michael Polanyi, Popper, Bertrand de Juvenel, historians, Dame Cecily Wedgwood, as she was later known, George Hilton, and others. And this group was dedicated to reviving the ideas at a high level. And Hayek wanted to make this a debating society, not a pat-on-the-back society. People should come and give bold theses, and other people should attack them, even their friends say, how can you maintain this thesis? The data are unsupported, blah, 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 blah. The point being to revive it at a high level, not a series of slogans, but serious intellectual work. <coughs> and then think tanks were established. Uh, and I've mentioned the IEA here, but there were two before that. In Australia, many people forget, uh, one of the first libertarian think tanks, and I think the first using that model, was 1943. That was in Australia, the Institute of Public Affairs still going strong, promoting free market, classical liberal uh, ideas, uh, not only the economic uh, field, but uh, toleration and uh, personal freedom. 1946, Leonard Reed, who was a participant in the Mount Pellerin Society meeting, he was the head of the Chamber of Commerce of Southern California, uh, business person involved in, in the Chamber of Commerce. And he wanted to explain to people how the world works, and set up the foundation for economic education, and had enormous influence on the world. This this organization was still around, still doing wonderful things. They're now more focused on the high school uh, segment of the population. I'm a big fan, I love fee. I was on their board for nine years, which was an honor for me. Then 1955, Institute of Economic Affairs, had a massive influence in Great Britain, uh, it's quite clear uh, how the country has changed because of the IEA. 1977, the Cato Institute, I put up there, is a particularly important uh, organization, and I think it's had a very strong influence in the United States, particularly, to reformulate the understanding that there's something called a libertarian perspective, that it's not schizophrenic to want to legalize marijuana and lower taxes which is the way it was presented for so long, like, wow, that is so weird. Well, it makes sense. Those are policies that actually fit together uh, quite neatly. Now, a lot of magazines and journals were launched that promoted liberalism, so again, not just English, like the Freeman, which is still going strong under a new editor, a new style, and so on. Uh, Ordo in German, this is a very deep, hefty uh, German academic publication, so if any of you have difficulty sleeping some day, pick up Ordo. Uh, But really a very important magazine. And Ordo liberalism was extremely influential in uh, the uh, post-war German scene. Farman, which is a Norwegian uh, publication, Farmand is an Old Norse word that means a merchant, a business person, someone literally, a man who goes far. Norwegian is fabulous in that regard. Uh, And then others in other languages as well, so mainly in Europe, uh, Italian, French, Spanish, Swedish, Danish, and so on, other magazines that were popping up that were promoting these ideas in various ways. I mentioned how important IEA was uh, in uh, the United Kingdom, and here on their 30th anniversary of the IEA, Mrs. Thatcher was there, and she put it very directly, they saved Britain. And as she said, without the IEA, nothing that she had accomplished would have been possible. Uh, They were the ones who changed the mindset and made it possible for uh, the Thatcher government to do the many good things uh, that they did. Now, if you're interested in the American story, Brian's book is quite good. It's very readable. As I expressed to him in my review of the book, he spends a substantial amount of time on interesting, zany, quirky, understandably forgotten figures uh, in the history of the libertarian movement, uh, because they're sort of fun to write about. Uh, So keep that in mind when you read the book. There are a lot of kind of oddballs in the book, and uh, there's a reason why everyone else forgot them. But Brian thought they were fun and interesting, so they play a Somewhat larger role in his book than I, than I think they deserve, but it is a very very fine book, and, and and I endorse it strongly. Now, just very briefly, and then I'll talk a little bit about the global context. Uh, I do most of my work outside of the United States, so in any given year, I'm in the U.S. maybe a, a 120 to 140 days. So last year, I was out 220 days, and um, <clears throat> so I'm not in the US to watch what happens that much. But I'm in, in Nepal, and um, in uh, uh, was in Moscow, and uh, Poland, and Wuj. And that was in Afghanistan, which I visit occasionally. I have a strong aversion to being beheaded. So this is how I address in Afghanistan. Um, that was North Korea, which is an interesting place. And, We do have some projects working with North Koreans. And to me, this is really, really important uh, that we uh, have uh, work with quite a few North Korean refugees and projects to promote these ideas in the Democratic People's Republic, which is the saddest, most horrible place I've ever visited in my life. Um, That's in Zaria, Nigeria. That's me in the middle here. Um, (laughs) And uh, Uh, This is at the Lagos State University, I'll talk a little bit about. This is a Students for Liberty chapter meeting. Uh, They waited three hours. My plane was delayed. And they had uh, about 250, 260 students who waited three hours. That's a a big deal for college students. And what an impressive group of young people. I mean, just really astonishing. This was in Namibia. Uh, This is one of the libertarian organizers there with a libertarian organization. And we were talking to farmers about property rights. They lack property rights there. And this gentleman, who's the village headman, sat down and explained to me why property rights were important. And it was really interesting because it was like sitting in a seminar with Ronald Coase or uh, Armin Alchian, or one of the great theorists of property rights. He understood this so well. Related this to someone who said, Wow, it's kind of amazing. He was able to figure out what they understood. I said, No, you've got it backwards. They figured out what he understood. That's the point. Farmers know this. It was really hard for professors to understand it. It's not that he miraculously understood what the professors had discovered, it's the opposite. And he went through the importance of property rights very clearly. And our partners there are trying to get the government there to allow not just communal property rights, which are a disaster, but individual and family uh, property rights. And then this was in uh, uh, Bhutan as well. So I'm, I'm on the road a lot. And I've been doing it for a long time. Uh, this was on the uh, western side of West Berlin. And that was an important uh, visit for me. Uh, That was me expressing my opinion of communism a long time ago. And uh, uh, it was uh, really moving when I saw the crosses of where the people had been shot. All they wanted to do was cross over a line. All they wanted to do was to escape. And they were uh, shot down. And if you've ever seen any of the films of it, it's very difficult. That was when I spent my time smuggling into the Soviet Union. Uh, This was a a typical grainy Eastern European winter scene that was during the revolution in Prague. And I spent two weeks uh, after they had shut down the universities. And it was really quite uh, an exciting time. And um, let's have another one here. And that's me with my old friend, Karl. <laughs> at uh, Karl Marx University in Budapest. Uh, so it's been a life passion for me. So a little few comments then. We have a contemporary worldwide libertarian movement. In the past, there was a libertarian movement that encompassed various parts of the world. Now, really, for the first time, it's authentically global. every continent. And as far as we can, every literary language. One of my personal goals is to get the works of Frederick Bastiat, who's just my hero, translated and published in every literary language. Some languages don't have written forms. But to me, it's important everyone in the world should have access to Bastiat. And so I've done about uh, 28 languages. I have a couple hundred more to go. Uh, which is a big incentive not to die. Uh, But uh, I've helped to bring him out in Nepali and Georgian and Azerbaijani and Chinese and uh, Turkish and Hindi and uh, Urdu and Hebrew and Hungarian and Romanian and lots of other languages for which there were no translations of Bastiat. And everybody loves Bastiat. When you understand it, just anybody can get busted. You could be a bus driver, you could be an entrepreneur, you can be a college student, you can be a professor, prime minister, maybe. Uh, <laughs> now, what is driving this? Well, lower costs of transacting, travel costs uh, are very low compared to what they had been at the time. It was so difficult. The Montparnasse Society meeting was incredibly costly and onerous of visas and problems and being stopped at borders and all of the expenses. Uh, Electronic communication costs. People can telephone and so on quite easily. And the interwebs, which allow us to communicate uh, quite easily. This is really transforming the world. And in particular, the growth of the libertarian movement in Africa, which is growing very rapidly. It's because everyone has the Internet on their cheap cell phones made possible by liberalization of cell phone telephony and access to inexpensive cell phones often made in China, uh, they all get Facebook and Twitter on their phones. And they can communicate quite effectively that way. But also the exploitation of certain virtues. and I think it's worth thinking about this. For classical liberals, uh, we have various libertarian virtues. And the first one, usually, could dispute which is which is first, which is second, is individuality, to be your own person. And even in the Chinese word for liberty, which as it turns out, I was born with a birthmark, which is the actual Chinese word for liberty. So it was a, uh, I was fated somehow for this career, uh, but it means individuality. It means to be your own person. It doesn't mean just to do whatever you want. It means to be yourself. That that notion of individuality is very important, probably primary. Secondarily, but maybe it's the first one. In fact, these somehow imply uh, each other is responsibility. You clean up your own messes. You're a responsible person. You're responsible for yourself. You're responsible if you harm other people. You bear that responsibility to be a responsible person, somehow connected to individuality. But there's another one uh, that's very significant: solidarity. For our collectivist uh, opponents, they usually put solidarity up here at the top. That's the most important thing. We're together. It's us. And usually it's us against them, working class against the bourgeoisie, the, the Germans against the Slavs, whatever it, whatever crazy form of collectivism they have. Solidarity, but always solidarity against someone else. But solidarity is a liberal virtue as well, as I mentioned for Joaquin Nabucco, to have solidarity, that we believe in the freedom of other people, and that when other people's freedom is harmed, it hurts us. We're we're damaged in some way, we feel it. And when our friends in other countries know someone cares about them, They are much stronger. It's difficult to explain. In the Soviet Union, I learned how important it was when people felt they were not forgotten. And this is why, although one could criticize his policy stands and things he screwed up and things he shouldn't have done, Ronald Reagan was really an important man, not a man I agreed with on everything. But the fact was, people behind the Iron Curtain felt somebody cares about us. Somebody cares that we suffer under this monstrous uh, tyranny. And that was really important to them. Uh, When I was in Romania, uh, I went to Romania immediately after Ceausescu was shot, when I was living in Vienna, and I was contacted through the British Embassy by someone who went to the British Embassy and said, I want to meet libertarians. So they sent to the Edward Smith Institute in London, the Edison Smith Institute faxed it to me in Vienna, and I got on a plane. And it was a very strange, chaotic place. But I remember this uh, boy that I met, this college student who was in the seminar we had, and he said, I really want an American flag. So I said, OK. So I sent the fax to my brother. It's hard to remember. There was no internet. <laughs> I faxed my brother. And I said, Would you get a flag, an American flag? So he sent this kid a flag. Unfortunately, the police hadn't figured out there was no more communism at that point. So they arrested him. It was very funny. It doesn't sound like it, but it turned out OK. They arrested him and brought him in and put him in the basement. And they opened the package. They said, You were sent an American flag. He said, Yeah, I asked for it. They said, You're a CIA spy. They said, What do you think, if if you're a CIA spy, they send you a flag? (laughs) I I actually was was, uh, stopped once on the Kyrgyz-Kazakh border. I drove over at night, and I had a very thick passport with all the extra pages. I had three extra sets of pages for visas. And the guy stopped me, and I had to spend eight hours at the border, and they said I had a spy passport. (laughs) the concept of a, a special spy passport, but, uh, but I don't think they put the brightest bulbs on the midnight shift at the Kyrgyz-Kazakh border. Uh, but in any case, uh, solidarity matters, and it mattered to this young man that he could see from his house the American embassy, and that he sort of felt, he said, always growing up as a boy, and they listened to Radio Free Europe, And then he could see that embassy, which he could never get in. And that was very important to him. So I sent him a flag, and they arrested him. Uh, But then another element, and it goes back to my opening comments, that liberty is not just an American or Anglo-Saxon principle or value. It's a very universal value. But it takes many forms, languages, contexts, uh, and cultures. Uh, There are universal aspirations for freedom independence, prosperity, and a very important thing, dignity. This is something I stress. When we promote property rights around the world, most of our friends say, prosperity, prosperity, economic growth, investment. I say, yep. But you know what people really want? They want dignity. That's the most valuable thing that they perceive as coming from saying, this is my farm, this is... Our house, our family lives in this house. It belongs to us, and that confers dignity. Then there's one last thing uh, that I think is important, uh, and that is uh, people, people I work with, who are independent and feisty and not willing to tolerate being pushed around and having their rights taken away from them. And that is a very important part of what sustains the Liberty Movement. So I thank you for your attention. And we have a bit of time. Yes, sir. I was uh, struck by John Adams' letter to uh, Thomas Jefferson Mm -hmm. describing the real revolution over that 15-year period. Uh, Unless I have a great misperception, uh, I think there's a widespread sense of uh, disenfranchisement and oppression in the soil of today. And I'm wondering if uh, Cato is considered using a modern equivalent of pamphleteering, a series of uh, YouTube videos that demonstrate the libertarian virtues that you listed in real life situations, maybe aimed at different age groups, a series of them, really well scripted, really slick, to to really drive home how community comes from below that you can't coerce it from above. Has that been considered? Yes. Uh, And I'm a big fan of also the division of labor, so there are other groups that do a good job at that. Uh, LearnLiberty.org. They have these fabulous, really good, short videos. They're clever. They've done a lot of marketing research. They found three-minute videos. That's about how much people will watch on the the interwebs. They don't want to spend a lot more time on it. Uh, If you open with a cartoon and a strong opening, and it turns out we think cartoons are only for children, not true. 70-year-olds also like cartoons. They demonstrated this very well. Every age group, somehow they attract us. Animation. Uh, And they're very, very well done. And that's a project of the Institute for Humane Studies. Uh, We do a lot of them at Atlas in other languages. So we have LearnLiberty.gr in Greek. We do them in Russian and and, uh, other languages as well. Um, So there are a lot of things like that. And there are two other groups that I recommend. There's a group called Isit.org. I-Z-Z-I-T. Not so well known. what they do is very short documentaries aimed at a very young audience, most of them. And they're marketed for junior high or like whatever is the age just before that through high school, like sixth grade to 12th grade. And uh, they market them in high schools and elementary schools. They get the teachers to show it. They, they appeal to the incentive to the teacher's interest, which is you don't have to prepare a lesson plan for today. You show a little video and then say, kids, let's discuss this. And they have a little discussion guide. They're very good. And they tell the Jamestown story. They tell the story of property rights. They tell all these wonderful stories. So that is already being done with very high production values. And then there is the free-to-choose media. That's what I was just in India with, uh, doing a documentary on... Uh, the transformation of India through the market, how since 1991, the lifting up of the Dalits, the so-called untouchables and others through the market. So there are a lot of those. And then that will be shown on TV, on PBS as a, a one-hour special, and then it'll be chopped up into bits that can be turned into it vid- videos and so on. So we need to do better, but there is a lot of that being done right now. Thank you. Yes, sir. North Korea. You, you really do work in North Korea? Uh, if you're extremely discreet, yes. Can you, can you talk about it at all? No. <laughs> but I can say we work with lots of North Korean refugees, and that's very important. Both as a humanitarian matter, these people have suffered things that we could barely imagine. Really, it's, it's awful, awful when they tell their stories. Um, and they're sometimes very frank about it, and they're, all, they're beyond tears, the, the suffering that they've endured. Uh, so working with them is important. And we've raised at Atlas, not so much Cato. I, I spend most of my time at Atlas, uh, a fair amount of money from humanitarian figures to work with North Korean refugees. And then also, we have other partners uh, who are promoting the Chinese model, uh, which would be a huge Im- improvement if they became more like China. China's not a free society, but trust me, compared to that, this would be a huge improvement in their, in their freedom. Uh, there was a big setback that all the people who supported that in North Korea were executed recently uh, by the new dictator. It was his uncle and the people around his uncle were all machine gunned. So, Uh, I'm not sure what's happening internally in the country. It's a very puzzling place. But but we do have many friends who um, are doing important things there. And like I said, it's the most horrible, sad, awful place I've ever been in my life. And I've been in a lot of really terrible places. And nothing is like North Korea.
1: You mentioned libertarians caring about the freedom of other people. Mm -hmm but everyone on the left knows really libertarians are a bunch of selfish bastards. And if you disagree with any Obama policy, you're racist, and disagree with Hillary, you're sexist. And everybody, all of us in this room know that everybody on the right, on the left really wants to take control of the world and tell everybody what to do. Um, there's so much ill feeling about people's motivations both ways Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you see any hope of that changing. Mm,
0: A bit. One thing, actually, at the Cato Institute, Ed Crane always, when he was president, would give an orientation for new staff members. And he would stress, I want to make it very clear, never question the motives of other people. Never. And the way he put it was, if you ever find you are questioning the motives of a person whose position you are criticizing, it means you do not have a strong argument. And so consistently Cato editors, scholars, are told don't do that. And if it creeps in, it's the responsibility of the editors to circle that in red and send it back and say take that out. That's not an argument. We assume that all of the vicious, selfish, greedy bastards who oppose us have the highest motives.
1: (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Tom, for your lecture. Um, I wanted to delve into a little bit uh, what you said about uh, the American system uh, versus what you advocate elsewhere, um, which is, you know, we have the executive system, um, uh, which is kind of checked by the legislative system. In a parliamentary system that you say you advocate,
0: who um, is in charge of executing the the order, kind of the laws made by the legislative branch, which would presumably be the the ministers? And I want to be very clear: it's not perfect, not at all. I'm just saying it's less bad or better, we want to put it, in most other contexts than a strong executive. When the strong executive is commander in chief of the armed forces and the Minister of Defense reports to the president, that's a really bad setup because we find most people like power forever and they do not want to give it up. The advantage, again, there are cases that have gone wrong, but the advantage of the parliamentary system is the other members of parliament can bring you down. If you lose a majority, you either have to have a coalition or even other factions in your party so it means that Parliament can be a more effective check on the ministers, the prime minister, or the defense minister, than Congress on a president, unless you have George Washington. And that was why the Ameri- that's one of the reasons I admire him so much. But most countries aren't so lucky. Well, it would be the last one.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, <coughs> uh, what did I say? Um, the Cato.org, uh, uh, you're strictly an educational organization, is that correct?
0: Cato Institute?
1: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. you can't you can't advocate for, you know, different political movements. Certainly uh, not electoral
0: and- politics, and that's another thing that Cato scholars are very careful about. And Cato editors, uh, if you want to be active supporting a candidate, it's outside the office on your own private time. Well, but, no uh, resources uh, of so, the
1: institute. Um, uh, in, in watching this, I, I think there's a place for it, but one of the fundamental things is smaller government. Mm -hmm. And um, looking back in my lifetime, I I guess the Civil Rights Act was passed right after I finished high school, and then Title IX followed several years later. Uh, But I'm also a a big proponent of a a meritocracy Mm -hmm. situation. Uh, uh, Do you think we need something like Title IX forever and affirmative action forever?
0: No, I don't think that we do. Um, and one could discuss what, whether it was appropriate at the time and for how long after you've exited a system of state-enforced mm-hmm. oppression and uh, brutality. I don't think that there's any need for a perpetual element to that. It's a controversial issue, whether it's appropriate or not. But no one that I know thinks that even uh, Preferential treatment for a limited period of time after apartheid or something like yeah. that is appropriate indefinitely. That would be well,
1: it, it, just seems, it seems to me once they're in government, as we've talked about, they tend to perpetuate themselves and the gov- it drives government to get bigger and bigger, which is kind of counter to. Maybe I, think I, that's, I would say I'm of, a, of yeah. the libertarian philosophy, but uh, in the interest of discussion and debate, I think that's, a, that's an issue or
0: problem. Okay. So it's speak. a fairly small part of our federal government, but it's an important one. Well, with that, thank you. And we're going to meet 545. Again, there'll be people with big signs, neon arrows pointing this way. But basically, 545, begin to assemble, just straight down this way. Go all the way down to the end, the east side. We'll have a van. Do bring, even if you dress casually and so on, try to bring a jacket or a sweater. It might get a little chilly later on. See you later.